Think with me just for a moment. I loved seeing and hearing about that little fishing village beside him. We've read about it in the New Testament. We've read about it in the Gospels. But what was Bethsaida about? What was it really like? Just a small village, really, only, as he said, six to eight hundred people at most, typically eight to ten extended families that made up the village. It was really, more than anything, just a small community of people. There was a kitchen area, a residence area, a work area, a courtyard where everyone would be visiting and, get, and, and fellowshipping together where the children would be playing. Then he goes on to talk about the little village of Corazon, just about three miles away. Probably not at all what our mind's eye would assume what these little villages were like, right? I mean, you hear about the stories, you think they're just villages or towns or cities, whatever. But really, when you look at it, they were small, small communities. He says that he's talking about cores and maybe 2,000 people, yet still a small village, really. And within the village, they lived in community. And they lived in the central courtyard together. They did life together. They did community together. I want you to close your eyes just for a minute. Everybody in here, just close your eyes. Just put your thinking caps on. Use your imagination, but just close your eyes. Imagine with me just for a moment. There is a small community of Jesus' followers. Possibly a small body of believers. Something similar to maybe a church. Let's just internalize it just for a moment. As our eyes are closed and we're just thinking, imagining, maybe this is Harvest Bible. Just for a moment. In similar fashion to the children of Chorus, and the children are sitting at the feet of their teacher learning the Bible. They're in their classes learning and growing and learning the Word of God so that they might apply it to their hearts and their lives. Rather than children running and laughing out in the courtyard, the children are running laps in the fellowship hall and out in the playground. And instead of parents calling the names of their children Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip, Imagine with me as your eyes are closed. It's Stephen, Cohen, Reese, Kyle, Anthony, Sean, Ian. The children that are in our community. Isaac and many other children who will grow up to be used of God to accomplish great things for his glory. Because we're in community together, learning the Bible, becoming disciples of Christ, impacting our community and the communities around us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, Lord, that that would be our desire, to see you work in such a way, Lord, that you would call up from among us those who would impact the world that we live in. And I pray, God, that you would do it in a way that would bring glory to yourself, not to us in any way. But, God, that you would use this church and this body, these parents, these grandparents, these adults, to impact a world that needs to see Jesus. And that we would do it in the community of a local church. And that we would reach out beyond our local churches to impact the world and the communities around us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you would, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I just want to highlight two verses this morning. Just for a moment. I want to leave some time for communion this morning, but I want you to think about a couple of things. It's amazing as you heard the story of what the community was like in the village. How they did life together. I can remember as a kid, my whole life revolved around church. I realize that's not the same for everybody, and it's okay. God uses different circumstances, gives different experiences. But I can remember how our church impacted my family in a lot of different ways, and I'm going to close with a couple stories at the end, but my world revolved around the local church. What wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it was comprised of people who cared and loved God and wanted to see God glorified as they did the work of the ministry. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, it says, But by obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers. Now when you see the word brothers, we can assume for the most part that brothers is referring to who? Believers in Christ. So let me go back and with that thought, read it again. By obedience to the truth, that's the word of God, having purified yourselves for a sincere love of each other, in the body, those who are fellow believers, love one another earnestly from a, what's the words? Pure heart. Since you have been born again, that means since you have come to know Christ, you have a relationship with Him, you place your faith and trust in Him, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. I want to read a statement from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a book I've been reading, Everyday Church. He says, Those who dream of an idealized community, warns Dietrich Bonhoeffer, demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands, set up their own law, judge one another, and even God accordingly. And then he continues, we can never live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed that really binds us together. The forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Christian community is not an ideal that we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we will learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. Why is it that some churches just exist? So they have no hope. They're just going through motions. Well, we go to church every week because that's what we do. Where's the life? Where's the energy? Where's the, man, where's the zeal? I want to live for God. I want to learn new things. I want to grow. Then he says one more thing. What forms and sustains Christian community is, perhaps paradoxically, not a commitment to community, to community per se, but a commitment to the Word. And remember what it says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. Fellowship is with who? 
the Father with His Son, Jesus Christ, right? Bottom line is this. The only reason we have a hope, the only reason we have an ability to have a desire to even come together is not because it's a social club, not because it's a country club where we want to come and gather and you know have a few activities on the calendar for the year and do this or do that and do a couple outreaches. We don't come together for those reasons. We come together because of the man Jesus Christ. That's the common bond that brings us together, and that's the very thing that gives us the hope in the community of the body of Christ. So he says, sometimes people place a big emphasis on the importance of community and neglect the word. Community then becomes a goal toward which we work. But Peter says, human activity cannot create life that endures. Activity can't create life. That's just an activity. You've heard me say before, activities on the calendar is just social stuff to do. If we don't pray and hope and expect God to work, why bother why bother? I think there's a lot of us that are tired on a Sunday morning. You'd rather just sleep in. Why, why come? If I'm not expecting God to teach me something, do something, grow, get deeper, get involved, impact another life. Why bother? Sleep is important. Spurgeon said sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is sleep. Spurgeon's a great guy, right? <laughs> I think you had a good point here. But Peter says human activity cannot create life that endures. An exclusive focus on community will kill community. It is only the Word of God that creates an enduring community of life and love. So in closing, Peter calls us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That is a demanding command designed to create a distinctive community. But Peter first says his readers have purified their souls by their obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. We have been purified by the gospel for love, so love. If that's why we exist, then do it. Fulfill your purpose. Love one another. The truth purges us of those selfish desires that conflict with love. And it is this that then enables us to love one another earnestly. Love one another deeply, says Peter, for you have been born again. And this is who we are. We are members of a new family bound together in brotherly love through the gospel of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. I love this. He says, so not gritting your teeth as if it's extra effort to love somebody. You love them out of a pure heart. Can you imagine just for a moment, when the speaker talked about Chorazin, he mentioned this fundamental truth. People live together, and they realize that community is more important than the individual. You see, I think that really relates well to the body of Christ. Because it's not about any one individual in this church. It's not about me. Not about Mike. Not about Jim. Not about any teacher. It's not about us as individuals. It's about us as a body of believers. And that's why he says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, that he gave certain people to the church to do what? Equip the saints. Not one saint, not the particular saint, not a gifted saint, but the saints, all of us, to do what? The work of the ministry. One thing I was impacted by when I saw Johnny Hunt a couple months ago was 
He said, so often as church and as church leaders, we get busy doing church work rather than the work of the church. Big difference. We can get busy doing stuff. And stuff is about individuals. And I'm not saying we're doing that, but we can be guilty of that. Rather than the work of the ministry. And I think there are two major keys to produce a community of Jesus followers. First, it's making a commitment to God's Word, the Bible. I know this sounds so simple, so trivial, so basic, so just, yeah, duh. I know it sounds like that. Let me ask a question. Are you committed to it? Are you committed to the Word of God? We'll say, well, well, I think I am. I mean, I I, I think I am. What's a test? How, How can I know that? Do you desire to read it? Do you get in it? Do you let God speak to you? Do you take time to just, I'm going to read this week. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to immerse myself in it and read it. And I want, I want God to speak to me. And I want to learn some new things. And there's just some things I don't understand. I'm going to do some extra research and some extra study. Uh, how much time do we give to even being committed to the Word? Because God's Word reminds us in James the what? Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, lest we what? Deceive ourselves. Thinking that we, and I'm adding my own little two cents here, thinking that we're better than we really are, because I don't really need to spend the time. I got that one nailed. John MacArthur made a statement. He says, one of the greatest and most harmful things that we can do in the body of Christ when the preacher gets up to preach, he says, turn your Bible to such and such. And we turn it there because someone told us to, but we turn it there and it's like, oh yeah, I've heard that one before. And we kind of go in coast mode as the preacher goes on. I'm guilty. I think some of you are too, if you're honest with yourself. I've heard a message on that before. I kind of get what that means. Or even maybe a little bit critical. Well, I thought it meant this, and I think it means this, so I think he's off on this one. But we kind of go into coast mode regardless. If we are going to be a community of Jesus' followers, we need to make a commitment to God's Word. To read it. And I'm not talking about spending three hours a day. I'm not talking about reading five chapters a day or, or even getting through the Bible. Those of you that know me, you'll hear me say this often. Read until God speaks to you. It might be the first verse you read. It might be the third chapter you get into. But read until God speaks to you. Read until he gives you something that you can think about that day and dwell on. Read until he gives you a nugget, a little piece of treasure that you can go with. Something that will sustain you that day and occupies your mind. Just read until he speaks to you. Are you committed to the Word? But not only just reading it, but putting into practice what you read. Putting it into practice. How many hours of TV did you watch this last week? How much time did you give to God's Word? Ouch! It's getting a little quiet in here. Ooh. But isn't it true? How much time did you give to serving God? Helping others? 
which is the second point. Two major keys to producing a community of Jesus followers. First is making a commitment to God's word, the Bible. Jesus must be the center of the true fel- our true fellowship. Number, secondly, it is a commitment to and practicing of biblical Christ-like love. Love for God and love for each other. How do you demonstrate love for each other? You've heard me use this definition before. Love is the decision that results in action, expects nothing in return. Love is a decision that results in an action, expects nothing in return. We love because Christ first loved us. And if I say I love but then don't do anything, then it's just idle words, right? And I don't do it because they may do something in return for me. I do it because it's right to do. So when you look at our community of believers, who is it that you need to show love to? Who is it that you need to demonstrate biblical love to? And let me just say this. Until you love God correctly, you will not love others correctly. You can't love someone else without loving God. Because you don't understand it then. Human love often is conditional, though we would never say that. It's a reward system for many. If you treat me right, then I will. Husbands and wives, if you don't treat me right, then stay away from me. Conditional. Based on my feelings. But God's love is different. I do it because it's right to do. Not expecting anything in return. I will love regardless of how you accept it. That's what God did, right? He loved without expecting anything in return. He didn't say, well, if you can just arise to this certain level, if you can just get rid of you know, 80% of your sins, then I'll, then I'll love you. Not. And I'm so thankful for that. But it's a commitment to and practicing of biblical Christ-like love. Love for God, love for each other. Look at your text in 1 Peter 1. I'm almost done. I want to start at verse 13. He calls us to something in a body. He says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not on the things of this world. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, who you were before Christ entered your life. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you address as as the Father, the one who judges impartially, based on each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your temporary residence. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life. Inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without defect or blemish. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the times. For you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What's he saying here? You're changed. You're no longer a part of the world system. You are now part of the family of God. Then he says, verse 22, by obedience to the truth. 
having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. He said, listen, this is different. You're no longer, you're no longer a product of this world. You're going to heaven. You're in a different family now. Can I just say this? In the body of Christ, you are a family. I don't know if you get that. You're now a child of God and part of a new family. I've said for years, and some of you don't understand this, and maybe you never will, maybe you do. I don't know, but let me just share 30 seconds. When I gave my life to Christ in eighth grade, I didn't have a clue what that was going to mean. I did not know. All I knew is that, yeah, God has pressed by my heart to follow him, and I'm making this all-in commitment, and I'm going head first, and I'm just going to, God, you've called me, I'm answering, I'm, I'm yours. So what does that mean? I end up going to Bible college and studying the Bible for four years and taking some master level courses and learning the Bible and it's time to get in ministry, quote unquote. And let me just say ministry is not just vocational ministry, it's misnomer. So I'm in this ministry and I'm praying and trying my hardest to find a ministry near my family. I mean, I'm looking everywhere where my family lives so that, because everyone knows, I mean, you have kids, the kids grow up, you stay close to mom and dad, mom and dad are in your lives and we're in their lives and we all just work together because we're one big happy family and we live close to each other, right? I mean, isn't that the ideal that everybody strives for even though it doesn't happen? We do strive for it, right? I mean, who of us parents wants our kids to move away? We want to be close. I tried my hardest, and God just won't let it happen. I mean, I'm sitting here in, in the middle of Indiana, and Don's parents are in Texas, my parents are in Minnesota, my brother's out in I, I, I couldn't make it happen. I tried. Somewhere around 10 years into our ministry, I said, God, I just started laughing. I said, God doesn't want us near family. Whether that's true or not is irrelevant, but here's what I've learned. Everywhere I went, and everywhere I've served, the church has become my family. Some of you may never understand this, but my kids will cry harder at your death than they will their blood relatives because you're closer to them. My kids' real grandparents are in Texas, in Minnesota. New York's not on the way to any of those. If you haven't figured it out, it's like way out there. So the church to us and our family or has become our family. The church to us is our family. You've heard me say it a, new, a dozen times, and I mean this from my heart. My phone is next to my bed, and if you need me at three in the morning, call me. That's life as a family member. That's how we live together, serve one another, grow together as followers of Jesus in community. Some of you have heard me look at you and say, you're ridiculous. Get over it. When you reprimand your kids, they may not like it, but is it right to do it? Yes or no? Yeah. You know what friends do? Friends tell each other when they're going the wrong direction. Some of the people that I have loved the most have said, Ken, you need to change that in your life. And let me just tell you, I didn't like hearing it. 
Neither do you. But when you love one another, you're honest with them, even when they don't want to hear it. But isn't that biblical? Yes, it is. You're now part of God's family. And let me just share a small part of my story. Three things, or four things. People in my church cared about my family and me. You've heard me share, and I'm not going to take a lot of time, but my dad was in the hospital most of my entire elementary years. I remember having father and son retreats at my home church, and I was bummed because my dad was in the hospital. And I had a friend by the name of Don Dean, who I was not his son, but Don knew that my dad was in the hospital, and he said, Ken, can I take you to the father and son retreat? I talked to your dad. Is it okay? That meant the world to me that somebody in my church knew our situation well enough to say, Ken, this is going to be a great weekend. You want to go? When my dad couldn't, that was the church. Being the church. I had people in my church that invested in my life. They taught me so much. Not just about religion or religious things or spiritual things, but about life. They invested in me. People in my church taught me the Word of God and held me accountable to what they taught me. My youth pastor looked at me and said, Ken, straighten up. That's just ridiculous. When I was a teenager. And to this day, he's still one of my closest friends. And it was kind of interesting here a couple months back when he was going through a difficult time. I said, Derek, straighten up. <laughs> he was 20 years older than me. I said, remember those words? He goes, yeah. <laughs> because we're in this together. People in my church met my physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. When my dad was laid up, my mom, things were tight. People anonymously contributed to my family's needs, medical needs. People acted as they should have as the body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ should be that place. Don't you agree? It's not perfect. Why? Because you're not perfect. And somebody's going to irritate the fire out of you one day. How are you going to respond? In love? Or retaliation? I know what my flesh wants to do. My kids have heard it a few times. And then i got to go back and say, yeah, but that's what God's called us to, and we need to learn to mature through it. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says... Don't forsake the assembling. And so much more as you see the day approaching. We are living in some difficult days. Anybody agree? You need each other. You may not know it, but you need each other. We need each other more now than ever. And in the community of Harvest Bible Fellowship, it's not about doing community. That's ridiculous. But in the community of our believers, we're following Jesus together as disciples of Christ. Encouraging one another. Remember when you talked about Chorazin? How everybody was serving God together. No, you know what this is? And let me just say this, and this may hurt a little bit. Because it hurts me a little bit, because I know how I failed in some of these areas. But Deuteronomy chapter 6 brings it all back around. He says, teach your children... All the precepts of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6. And then your children, as they grow up being taught and it's being modeled in your life, what will they do? 
teach your children. And then they'll teach their children. But sometimes we break the link because we don't teach our children as we ought. And yes, sometimes children don't want to learn. But let's not let the chain break on our watch. Let's do what God's called us to do. Be committed. First of all, to the Word of God. And then be committed to practicing biblical Christ-like love. And only when we do that can we be the community of believers that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the message. Thank you that the fact that it's timeless. And I pray, God, that you would just speak to our hearts. Lord, all of us know where we failed. Lord, all of us know where we've let you down, where we've Lord, just not been obedient as we should, haven't been as mature as we should. I pray, God, that you would just not only convict us, but change us, Lord, so that we can be more like your son. We'll give you the praise and the glory for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.